Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. Now, I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist, a husband, a father, a grandfather, and a small business owner, a Catholic, and a bunch of other things. Uh, But right now, I'm your host on All Things Women's Health. From childbirth to infertility, from pregnancy loss to menopause, or homeschooling to personal trainers, if it involves women and their health, it's on the agenda for all things women's health. And joining me today is a good friend and colleague, Nicole Bobe. Nicole is a physical therapist specializing in women's health, more specifically, issues related to the pelvic floor. And I'm really excited to have the opportunity to introduce you to Nicole and her extremely unique approach to helping women who are struggling with a vast array of pelvic health issues. We live in a broken world. That's just a fact. And increasingly, we need help with our brokenness. We need tools to help us set the conditions right for healing. Sometimes that could mean surgery or sometimes a a medication. Other times, it could mean helping patients better understand how and why they hurt, combined with a healing touch and encouraging words of a physical therapist like my guest, Nicole Bobe. As we learn, Nicole's approach seeks to find and explain the why, the root cause behind the what or the symptoms. And as she will say, if you can find the why, you can treat the what. So get comfortable as we get to know more about Nicole Bobe and her amazing work as a physical therapist specializing in women's health. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Nicole, welcome to All Things Women's Health. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It is an absolute honor to be here today. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. So let's start with a vocabulary lesson. There's a lot of letters behind your name. What do all those letters mean? Uh, well, uh, the PT means uh, I'm a physical therapist. The MPT means I have my master's degree in physical therapy. Uh, WCS stands for Women's Health Clinical Specialist. And the CIMT uh, means that I'm a certified integrated manual therapist. Wow, that's a lot of stuff to keep up with. So for perspective, uh, let's give our listeners a sense of how many physical therapists are there running around in America? (laughs) Right. Well, uh, the statistics stay in uh, 2021, there was roughly about 210 physical therapists. Of the 210 physical therapists... Uh, there's a roughly a little about about 33,000 um, that have specialized in a specific area of physical therapy. So, so 210,000 roughly total, and then how many would be specialized? So exactly in 2021 was 32,704. Oh, okay. So oh my. yeah, and of the of those. Um, less than 2% or 611 are uh, women's health clinical specialists. Wow. So you're in a small group, relatively small group. 600 is still a lot of people, but it's a relatively small group. So let's start then with the educational path uh, and walk us through that of a typical physical therapist. Sure. So now you have to have a four-year undergraduate degree um, first before you can get into physical therapy school. So you're going to have a four-year undergrad and majoring in uh, one of the health sciences. Typically, people major in biology like I did or 
um, chemistry, kinesiology, um, so on and so forth. But could they be an English major if they chose to? <laughs> they would have to make sure that they met all the criteria sure. to get into physical therapy school. Mm. So I don't. I, they'd have to take extra classes um, to make sure they cover all of the sciences that are needed to get into PT school. Sure, that's not uncommon in medical education either. For medical school, you could you could major in English, but by the time you take all the prerequisites, you often end up with a biology degree or some other science degree. That's right. So I see what you mean. That's sure. right. And even after I graduated with my degree in biology, there were still some extra courses that were needed to get into physical therapy school um, that I had not met. Um, so there were some there were some extra courses coursework that was required before I went into just the graduate program. So what are some of the different types of physical therapy areas of expertise beyond just sort of what you might say is your your average physical therapist, if there is such a thing? Right. Well, I actually want to dial back to that previous question because it's a four-year undergraduate degree, and then after that, it's a three-year DPT wow. program. So it's actually seven years cumulative total mm. um, of, of coursework. So four-year undergrad, then three years grad school after that. And all physical therapy pro programs now are at the doctoral level. So once you graduate now, back when I graduated in 2001, the master's degree was the highest level you could go. Mm. And now all programs are at the doctoral level. Wow, that's a big commitment for a college student to make right off the bat, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely, because you're going to bank on you know approximately seven years of college. So what are some of the different types of physical therapy areas of expertise? Right, so you can specialize now in physical therapy. You can specialize in neurology or geriatrics or pediatrics. Uh, there's sports medicine, oncology. Uh, there's lymphedema, uh, orthopedics wound management, um, and of course, uh, women's health oh, or wow. pelvic physical therapy. That's just to name a few. Well, let's get sort of to the basics, you might say, or the basis. What, what really is the basis of physical therapy overall? Yeah, so essentially, and this is kind of neat, it actually goes back to the history of a physical therapist. The very first physical therapists that ever existed were actually nurses. They were army nurses. And what they would do is uh, once the soldiers were actually wounded on the battlefield, um, they were pulled into the infirmaries and the army nurses were responsible for rehabilitating these soldiers and getting them back um, onto the battlefield. So it was kind of cool. So um, essentially what we're doing is, is we're gathering up the wounded warriors of life through activities of daily living, right? And um, Get them on back on the battlefield. We're, yeah, <laughs> getting them back on the battlefield, exactly. So it's actually working with people, rehabilitating, helping them, coming alongside them, walking with them um, through their struggles and getting them back into living life to move more efficiently, uh, to have less pain, restore function, um, so that they can uh, have a better quality of life. So that's remarkable, Nicole. So as we, th as we think about that and those wounded warriors, what are some of the most common ailments for which someone might decide to see a physical therapist? Sure. Well, musculoskeletally speaking, 80% of the population suffers from low back pain. So that is 80%, probably... 80%. Wow. Mm -hmm, right. And that's one of the most common things um, that physical therapists uh, see patients for. Uh, in addition to that, uh, hip pain, back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain. Uh, so definitely pain... <laughs> Uh, is is definitely uh, the number one thing. Uh, most people that are coming to physical therapists are suffering from uh, 
some sort of pain. Wow. So I'm sure some of our listeners must be questioning the difference or the similarities maybe between physical therapy and chiropractic therapy. As many of those elements, particularly pain, might be common to both disciplines. Help us understand some of the differences between how you as a physical therapist might approach a problem uh, as a PT versus how maybe a chiropractor would approach a similar or same problem. Right. Well, I appreciate that question. I I actually went to uh, a chiropractic appointment with a friend of mine, and uh, I was asking uh, her chiropractor um, that very question. And uh, per the chiropractor, she basically said the basics behind chiropractic is to find the malalignment in the actual spine and or in a joint and what a chiropractor chiropractor will do will be to manipulate that joint to essentially reposition the joint and in so doing the the nervous system then responds and the body um has a positive effect. So they're actually trying to like go directly to a joint and use either their hands or an instrument to realign that joint. So the, the chiropractor is actually inducing a change to the body um, for a positive response. Whereas with physical therapy, A, what I like to do is to try to find what is the root cause um, why is the joint malaligned in the first place? And I'm looking for drivers, root cause analysis. And interestingly, they told us in physical therapy school, listen to your patients. They're going to tell you exactly what to do. And they're going to tell you exactly how to fix it. And I totally believe that. And I've been a therapist, gosh, going on, going on 21 years now. And I know that if I listen carefully to my patients, they're going to tell me exactly that. So I'm looking for clues in their story. I'm looking for physical traumas. I'm looking for like emotional um, traumas that may have happened, um, high areas of stress in their life, and then um, understanding how the body reacts to physical, emotional, and mental stresses. And then putting those pieces together, along with looking at posture, along with looking for muscle imbalances, um, and and getting into those areas, coming up with working hypothesis, and then treating that way. Mm. Now, yeah. is there a particular ailment that you might hear a patient describe and you say to yourself, ah, that is purely a chiropractic problem? <sighs> That's difficult to say. Mm. Um, I have many, many friends and colleagues that are actually chiropractors, and I think that these two professions work well hand in hand. In fact, the research even substantiates that, that chiropractic manipulation combined with core stabilization, for instance, in the low back pain, yields the most successful outcomes. So sometimes what happens is muscles are in, you know, in so much spasm that 
that joint may need a low amplitude, high velocity thrust, which is what chiropractors um, are commonly known for doing to be able to, to reposition that joint. There's other ways, like for instance, I use muscle energy commonly. Every muscle is attached to a bone. So if I find that the bones are malaligned, I want to show that patient how to use their muscles to allow the muscles to pull the bone back into place so that the patient's actually doing it versus me doing it for a patient. That's one of the things I don't want. I don't want a patient to become dependent on me to quote unquote fix them. I, what I want to do is I want to help a patient to help themselves. And what we commonly see with with some chiropractors, the chiropractor will make the manipulation and make the correct the correction, but then the the patient can become reliant on coming to to the chiropractor on a regular basis to have that done for them. Whereas, what I'd like to do is to be able to empower my patients to understand what's going on, why is it happening, what can they do to help set the conditions right. What's my my role? My role is to tell them everything I know and to teach them everything I know so that they can actually do this on their own and they can self-manage and self-care moving forward. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've been to both physical therapists and chiropractors and it seems like simplistically from my patient perspective that you know, the physical therapist focused on the softer tissues and the chiropractors focused on the harder, the bony, the bonier tissues. But you'd mentioned at some point instruments. What role does technology play in providing physical therapy? I'm thinking of, you know, ultrasound and electrical stimulations uh, and the like. Right. Those, those can be modalities that help to treat the symptoms. For instance, ultrasound is a form of deep heat, um, and that can be used to calm down muscle spasms and help to release some scar tissue in some cases and electrical stimulation uh, it helps down to, to, to calm down, uh, to, to mitigate pain, if you will, and to help again with muscle spasms. But it, those sorts of things, what I've found is they're not really getting to the, the root cause of it. Physical th- therapy early on used to use a lot more mo- modalities and we're get, kind of getting away from that as a profession. Um, at least I'm not a big modalities-based therapist. One of the reasons why is because patients don't have access to these things at home. So I want to be able to teach them things to do to empower them so they, they don't have to rely on, on on these modalities or these forms of technology that they don't have available in their own home. Now, along those lines, it, it just seems like in observation that heat is a good thing, that muscles like heat. Help us understand that. So... When you heat something up, it helps to bring in blood flow and it helps uh, with vasodilation, right? So what we found is that muscles like heat when they're in spasm, right? And that brings in oxygen and oxygen is, is needed as a nutrient needed to help relax tissue. So if something's in, uh, in spasm, muscles, it's like sitting in a whirlpool, right? Everything just kind of relaxes and kind of um, calms down and you just kind of melt. And, and I even actually use heat um, as a pelvic physical therapist. For someone that is not pregnant, I will put um, a hot pack over their lower abdominal muscles to help relax those lower abdominals. And what we know about the lower abdominals and the pelvic floor is their sisters. So if, if one relaxes, the other one does as well. So so yeah, so heat is commonly used um, to be able to induce a, a relaxing But then effect. we see soccer players and football players on the sidelines with big ice packs on them. What's the difference there? Why, why are they using ice instead of heat? Right. So for an acute injury where you have 
uh, acute inflammation, you want to use ice because you want to vasoconstrict. You want to actually create or free up space. So, you know, when you ice something down at like, like your hands get cold, your rings fall off your fingers, right? So, um, we want to eliminate that inflammation or reduce that inflammation and take pressure off nerves as much as we can. Um, and we also know that nerves can respond well to ice and, um, that, that can have a calming effect as well. Wow. Interesting. So is there a role for medications, maybe pain medications or so-called muscle relaxants or anti-inflammatory medications? Is there a role for those in the practice of physical therapy? Uh, certainly, these can definitely be adjuncts to our treatments. I'm hesitant, though, because, you know, if patients are taking pain medications, sometimes that, that may mask uh, the pain. And, and I'm trying to ask my patients, well, you know, a lot, commonly when, when a patient's doing an exercise, um, I, wanna, I want them to tease, tease the pain, touch the pain, nudge the pain, right? Go right up to it and then back off. So if they have a pain reliever, um, on board, that, that's going to kind of mask things a little bit. So unless somebody is like right post-surgery and I'm really trying to gain range of motion in a specific joint or we're really trying to work through scar tissue and patients cannot tolerate it, I'll typically try to have them hold off on taking pain medication just so I can, I can get a good read on where their, their real pain level is so that's not, that's not masked, masked so that we don't go above and beyond um, what we should wow, during that visit. Yeah. yeah. Now, Nicole, this will make you uncomfortable, but I happen to know that you're special for a lot of different reasons. But let's talk about what your specializations are within the field of physical therapy. Right. Um, so I have my WCS, which is my Women's Health Clinical Specialist Certification. Now, that's a big deal, isn't it? Well, it's the highest level of training a pelvic physical therapist can attain. Uh, sure. um, and that, that is actually is through the American Physical Therapy Association, um, the board certified specialist certification. So what's different about seeing you versus seeing a typical, if there is such a thing, physical therapist with that in mind? Right. So I guess you'd have to say, you know, when you say a typical physical therapist, for instance, an orthopedic therapist, and that I used to be an actually an orthopedic physical therapist uh, for the first eight years of my career. So I was treating the head, shoulders, knees, and toes, backs and <laughs> hips and necks for eight years um, leading up to that. And now as a, as a pelvic physical therapist, when I've gone on to get my specialization, um, I can, I actually have an inside out approach uh, to treating dysfunction. So I'm able to access and treat and evaluate the muscles from the inside out of the body. So being able to access those deep pelvic muscles and a typical physical therapist would not be able to do that. Now, would a, do all physical therapists have the ability to help with pelvic floor problems, but you just specialize in them? Or is it really an area that only pelvic floor physical therapists do? Well, that's interesting that you say that because back in 2001, when I graduated from physical therapy school, I had never even heard of pelvic physical therapy. That was not part of our curriculum in physical therapy school. And even in our cadaver dissection, we just kind of, you know, glossed right over the pelvic region. And I wish I could actually go back to my gross anatomy lab because I so badly would want to be able to um, just learn more from a dissection standpoint of those muscles. So, I, we gained, or at least back when I was in physical therapy school, 
very little regarding uh, looking at the pelvic floor, evaluating that as an or- from an orthopedic approach. Mm-hmm. I think they're incorporating that more into curriculums now, and especially now that pelvic physical therapy is starting to gain more and more um, just attention. To truly be able to evaluate the pelvic floor muscles to be done effectively, it should be done either intravaginally or intrarectally. Mm-hmm. A typical therapist that's not trained in this area, um, you just have to watch from a legal standpoint. <laughs> if uh, if just an, an orthopedic therapist is evaluating that, you can do that externally. Um, you just ev- even evaluating some of the pelvic floor muscles through deep palpation externally can be evaluated. Um, but I think most orthopedic therapists would refer out sure. if they are questioning that it's a pelvic-related issue. Such a specialized area right, of expertise. Right, right. Now, what led you to decide, I'm tired of knees and shoulders. I think I'll focus on this this one much more narrow area of physical right. therapy. So it's so interesting because at the time, I was actually working for an orthopedic company uh, that had a model such that I was working in a big busy gym with, and and at any given time, I was seeing two or three patients at one time. And there were multiple treatment tables in the gym, and I was not able to give undivided attention or one-on-one care to any patient at one time. Well, maybe my very first patient of the day. (laughs) But then a half hour later, my next patient was showing up, and then a half hour later, my next patient was showing up. So then I had three patients going at one time. It was very difficult for me to keep up with that pace. But more so to give my patients undivided attention, which I knew they deserved um, and I wanted to give so badly. So I was really frustrated at the time and trying to to work in this environment and to work under this business model. And at that time, a really good friend of mine fell on her tailbone playing volleyball. And she came to me with this horrible vaginal pain. And as an orthopedic therapist, I evaluated her and I knew that this was beyond my scope and that she needed to see a pelvic physical therapist. So I referred her uh, across town. The orthopedic company I was working for did have one uh, pelvic physical therapist and she had a little um, a little clinic over at the south side of town. And so I sent my friend there and it just took one visit one visit and working with that pelvic physical therapist, 100% of her pain was gone. I was so amazed because I was trying to help that friend for, gosh, maybe a week before she got any relief. And of course, she had to go to the pelvic PT for that. So I was intrigued by the quick results, first of all. And secondly, I my friend came back and she had let me know that that pelvic physical therapist was actually looking for someone to join her practice and to join her clinic actually. And so at that time, I did not know a lot or really anything about pelvic physical therapy. So I got a hold of that physical therapist right away just to thank her for the uh, the work that she had done with my friend. And I had said, hey, I, I understand that you are interested, you're, you're looking for a therapist to join. And she said, I am. And I knew at that time that Pelvic physical therapy was going to allow me one-on-one care with patients. That was my impetus. So my a volleyball impetus. injury launched a career. Yeah, and to that day, <laughs> I thank that friend that fell on, fell on her tailbone uh, because it really did. It opened the door for me um, to a specialization and really a calling um, that, that I know that 
that God had for me, intended for me all along. <laughs> wow. So there must be thousands of patients who are thankful for that volleyball injury at this point. Right. So what are the most common types of problems related to women's health and, and the pelvic floor that they're going to find their way to see you about? Right. One of the most common uh, problems we, we see is pelvic physical therapists is urinary incontinence. It's so, so very common. And, and what is common is not normal. So I always want to uh, let people know that. Yeah, just because it happens to everybody doesn't mean it's normal. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we find that. Um, but also pelvic pain, uh, painful intercourse, uh, urinary frequency, urinary urgency, um, abdominal pain, lower abdominal pain, uh, unresolved hip pain, unresolved low back pain, uh, constipation, anal pain, rectal pain, um, and uh, I don't know if I said this, but painful intercourse or anything uh, revol re involving perineal trauma after childbirth as well. So someone that has hip pain that it just hasn't been figured out, they could actually have a pelvic floor problem, not a hip problem. Is that what you're saying? Well, the pelvic floor, that actually when you're evaluating the pelvic floor from the inside out, there's deep hip muscles that can only be accessed internally. And so those hip muscles are like the, the hip muscles are like the walls. Uh, the inside walls of the pelvis, and then uh, it's kind of joined down in, in the pelvic floor. So it, it could still be a hip issue, but those muscles aren't able to be accessed unless they're reached internally. So we commonly find if there is an unresolved issue with um, low back pain, uh, hip pain, even some knee pain, um, it's it, it may be because there's a, there's a pelvic floor issue or the muscles need to be accessed and released from the inside out. Wow, that's fascinating. I know that you're a pretty modest person, and you won't like me asking you this, but what's unique about your approach specifically to women's health physical therapy? Right. I, I think, and this has evolved as I've continued to practice as a physical therapist, but I guess most unique to to the way I uh, approach treatments is I use a faith-based approach um, to to treatment. And by that, well, as soon as, as a patient is starting to talk to me, um, I'm, I'm already starting to just enter into prayer and just asking that the Lord listen, that I may actually hear um, what the patient's saying, and praying that the Holy Spirit is actually going to uh, pull out some of the root causes um, through the patient's story and that the patient will have an ability to trust me um, with their life story. More often than not, I feel like, uh, you know, like writing a book saying, you know, tell me what's going on in your life and I can tell you what's going on in your pelvic floor <laughs> uh, because because it's true. And, and the more patients um, share with me, the more I'm, I'm able to, you know, identify uh, some of these blocks that I believe um, stand in the way of healing. And, you know, I went on a, uh, a retreat back in, I think it was 2017, 2018. And Dr. Mary Healy, a uh, scripture scholar, was talking about spiritual blocks to physical healing. Mm -hmm. And as a physical therapist going to that retreat, I was so intrigued. And I had never thought about spiritual blocks to physical healing. And here, I was treating the way that I learned to treat in physical therapy school. But going on that retreat was so helpful because I recognized there's some pieces here that, that could lead to a chronicity 
of pain if these things aren't identified. And being able to help address those things has has con- completely changed the way I've practiced and actually enhanced outcomes tremendously. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting hearing you tell that story. I can think of so many times with pregnant patients in labor where it's time to push and to push this baby out and it will not come out unless the pelvic floor relaxes. But if they've got some trauma in their life related to their pelvic floor, and the one that we always think about is probably sexual abuse, but it doesn't have to be that. But if there is some pelvic trauma, a lot of times that's in the way of their birth, as, as kind of goofy as that sounds. But I think any, any birth worker of any time at all has had a chance to see that, where you realize something that happened a long time ago is in the way of this baby getting out. Uh, that's pretty interesting. It's huge. I mean, we hold in stress, tension, and anxiety with the same muscles that we hold in gas, stool, and urine. <laughs> yeah. It's totally true. And so that's why someone's life story is really important because I can oftentimes, when someone shares their story with me, when when their symptoms began, be it urinary incontinence, be it painful intercourse, be it pelvic pain, be it urinary frequency, urgency, some of these pelvic-related symptoms, I'll often ask, what was going on in your life during that time? And 90% of the time, uh, they will share with me a a stressful, stressful, stressful situation. Um, It it could be a story of abuse. It could be a story of grief or a loss of a loved one. It could be that they were going through a divorce at that time. Um, It could be that they had lost a child. It could be that they... um, had a a recent move or there's just a host of different things and so what we find is that when there is something that is is happening or an extreme stress it activates activates the sympathetic nervous system right so it sends the body into this fight flight or freeze and we know that that will kick off tension in the body and then that tension typically leads to either pain or weakness and then that sends them right back into more stress, more anxiety, oh, more fear, cycle, huh? which is more tension, more pain or weakness. And then that, that cycle just continues to spin. And I call that the cycle of despair. And so just letting patients know that they're kind of in that, in that cycle and we need to be able to lice that cycle um, in order to get them into a cycle of healing or a cycle of hope is, is one of the first, um, first pieces of, of being able to, to get to the root cause oftentimes. Yeah. I don't say it nearly as beautifully as you do, but I often talk to patients about who's going to be at their birth. Uh, and I like to say to them, you should have anybody at your birth that you're comfortable pooping in front of. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. It's the same set of muscles. And if you if you don't imagine that you could poop in front of these people, there's a pretty good chance you can't push your baby out in front of these people. That is either. exactly right. And it's interesting <laughs> because, you know, we talked about sympathetic, right, is that fight, flight, or freeze. Well, parasympathetic um, is the is is the aspect of the nervous system that dials down the volume, right? We say that's the rest, digest, feed and breed aspect of the nervous system. So defecation and urination are actual parasympathetic, um, is controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system. And so yes, those muscles, um, even when giving birth, they need to release and they need to let go. 
So if, if, if you're not feeling safe, you're not feeling comfortable, like what you had said, if you're not comfortable <laughs> pooping in, son of, in front of somebody, um, you're going to end up holding back, and that's going to affect labor. Yeah, it doesn't work if you hold back. It's right. not, a, not a time to hold back. So, Nicole, uh, a patient has maybe, maybe stress incontinence or maybe painful intimacy, let's say, and she uh, is either referred or self-refers to you. Walk us through what a typical course of therapy might look like with you. Right. So the very first thing is they're going to be greeted by a stack of paperwork <laughs> because I have an intake form that that asks very, very specific questions um, targeted at, you know, it's going to ask about urination habits. It's going to ask about defecation habits. It's going to ask about, you know, the types of foods that you eat and drink and so on and so forth. It's going to ask about your sexual function. It's going to ask about pain. Um, and I always tell my patients, I thank them for filling this out because it really, really makes them um, think hard about their urination, defecation, sexual function. And, and, and these are clues that oftentimes don't come out in the story. And I always let my patient know, um, today what we're going to do is, is I want you to walk me through what's going on. I want you to tell me anything and everything that you think may pertain to what your issue is. So that Even, sounds like a lot of talking and not a lot of deep tissue massage. That's right. On the very first visit, establishing rapport is so crucial. I want my patients to know that they that I that I'm hearing them, that I see them. Um, I want to validate them. Uh, I want them to know that I'm listening. And again, if they if they tell me enough of their life story, I'm going to be able to put together a working hypothesis about what the root cause, what the driver is of this. And so on the first visit, I mean, it's it's sharing a thorough subjective history, and then. I'll, I'll come up right there with a working hypothesis based on what their story is. So if they're having urinary incontinence, I have to understand, okay, what's going on with the pelvic floor? D am I hypothesizing that the pelvic floor muscles are too high and tight? Or are they just like too low and weak? And and I use an analogy of an elevator, right? And so um, I literally have a pelvis in my in my hands, and if I if I turn the pelvis toward them, there's actual the muscles are they show up in red inside this pelvis and. So I literally take my cupped hand and I, I like pull my hand out of the pelvis because my cupped hand now it becomes my pelvic floor. And, and that's very much like a hammock that sits right between the pubic bone and the tailbone. And I use an analogy of an elevator with my patients saying, your body is like a 10-story building and your pelvic floor is like the elevator, and I'll use my hand, is like the elevator that goes up and down inside your body. And ultimately, we want that elevator to be to be right there at the fifth floor. And that's when it's strong and it's doing its job well because it's holding in gas, stool, and urine. It's holding up the organs. It's holding your pelvis stable when you walk. Now, in order for you to go to the bathroom, in order for you to urinate or defecate, your elevator needs to go down and to the ground floor. And where the ground floor is, that's where the elevator doors open. People understand that, right? That's where those muscles lengthen. And so basically I'm, I'm using uh, kind of an analogy of uh, when your muscles relax or the elevator goes down and I open my hand, okay, that's when the bladder contracts and you'll urinate. Or when the muscles go down and relax, that's when the rectum will contract, assuming that there's you have to have a bowel movement and you'll have a bowel movement. Or 
during labor, <laughs> when those muscles are relaxing and the uterus is contracting, that's when you're having a baby. So they, they can kind of understand that, like that opening hand um, a- analogy. So, and so then, Nicole, patients are going to see you. They're going to learn a lot in these first visit or two. What happens after that? So after that, the very next visit, I'm going to retell their story back to them. So essentially, I, when, when, when a story is retold back to someone, that, that, that actually kicks off a healing response in the brain to know, oh my gosh, somebody heard me. I feel heard. I feel, I feel like she's listening. I feel validated. Um, and that immediately is going to start a calming because, you know, back to the elevator analogy again, um, we talked about the elevator going down. We didn't talk about the elevator going up. People oftentimes um, know of and hear about a Kegel. So a Kegel is when those muscles lift and tighten, and that would be like the hand, the fifth floor, the cupped hand actually going up into a fist. And so life and life situations, life stressors, they take us into like a fist fist inside of our pelvis and we don't know that so those muscles become really high and tight so at that visit number two basically i'm going to do an assessment of those muscles and i would have already explained what exactly i'm doing and and why i'm doing it how i'm doing it at that first visit because people are a little nervous when they're coming into a pelvic physical therapist Um, They've been to an OBGYN and they've typically had a pelvic exam, but the pelvic muscle assessment that I do is different than a pelvic exam, even though the setup is the same. But I want to explain to them on the first visit what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it. And I'm going to use that model to show them how this typically is an assessment, an intravaginal assessment where I can actually apply pressure to the evaluate the pelvic floor and i know right away by the tone of the muscle whether or not that muscle feels stiff and rigid and tender um, or whether or not that muscle feels soft and non-tender and so what i'm doing is i'm evaluating and i'm trying to find areas that may have heightened tone so a series of education and understanding then a phase of actually working on the muscles right right Um, evaluating those muscles finding the trigger points finding mm -hmm. the knots and working through those and then so what would a typical course of physical therapy look like maybe in terms of number of visits right so it kind of depends on the actual diagnosis so somebody with a straight urinary incontinence that does not have any knots or trigger points in their pelvis that can be four visits or less Somebody that has urinary incontinence that's loaded with um, high tone or has lots of trigger points in their pelvis or possibly um, their pelvis is a little bit malaligned or they're suffering from pelvic pain, painful intercourse, or there's uh, perineal scars that we're working on, that can take upwards of six to 10 visits. Most patients will schedule for six visits and by that sixth visit, and we go one time a week for six weeks, by that sixth visit, People have, patients have plenty of tools in their toolbox to be able to start the self-management. Um, during that time, if we need to schedule more visits, we can always do that. But most people are, are already feeling better by, by anywhere between the fourth and sixth visit. That's remarkable. You could quite literally change someone's life in six weeks. Right. Yeah, right, and sometimes less. Amazing. After we release those pelvic floor muscles, uh, within one to two weeks, they should already start noticing a difference. Well, in the interest of disclosure, through the years, I've sent you many, many patients that I planned on operating on, maybe for stress incontinence, 
and they ended up canceling their surgery because you fixed their stress incontinence. So I didn't get to do my favorite surgery, <laughs> uh, but you fixed them without surgery. And I always say the best surgery is the one that you never have. Oh, I like that. <laughs> so it, changing gears a bit, as you think about your career and physical therapy in general, you've been doing this for quite some time. How have you seen it change through your career? I guess the biggest thing that I've seen is that when I first started practice, we had we had therapists in general had more of a passive approach. Again, we were more modalities based mm -hmm. and more like treating symptoms. And now, and especially as a pelvic physical therapist, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm looking for that root cause. I want to find the why behind the what. I just don't want to treat the symptoms because the, you may get a short-term temporary relief, but the symptom will, will commonly come back. And so I, I just don't want to release someone's pelvic floor and then send them on their way just for that pelvic floor muscle, those pelvic floor muscles to just yo-yo back up into tension again. It, it's if we got to figure out, you know, why why is that muscle tightening up? Is it compensating for something? Is, is, is it, why is it weak? If somebody is having urinary incontinence, why are they leaking urine, right? Are the muscles too high and tight? Or are they just too low? Is the elevator too low and needs uptrained <laughs> or is the elevator too high and needs downtrained? So really we're trying to look for more um, root causes and, and actually looking for you know, the drivers versus just treating symptoms. Well, that's interesting. With that in mind, where you sit in your career, I'm sure there's a college student or a high school student uh, maybe listening to this podcast that maybe they've given some thought to physical therapy. Maybe they haven't until they've heard you talking about it with your passion uh, and zeal for helping people. What advice would you have for them? Well, first of all, if they're interested in, in working in, in the career field of physical therapy, you have to like working with people <laughs> <laughs> because this is definitely um, a vocation, a ministry, a calling um, where you're going to come alongside people and, and walk with them. So I would say, first of all, volunteer in a physical therapy clinic, work alongside a physical therapist and see if you could see yourself in this role. Um, that's that's actually required to get into physical therapy school, and I'm really glad that it is. Um, secondly, I would say take lots of psychology courses because what we find, and I see this so often, is in neuroscience actually backs this. Where the mind goes, the brain goes, and where the brain goes, the body follows. And so when there's when there's thinking and when there's toxic thoughts, these thoughts, and this just is amazing um, in regard to how the brain was constructed, how we were formed in our mother's womb, and God's design for the human brain. And this is cognitive neuroscience that substantiates this, that the human brain has an optimism bias. And so when there's, when there's toxic thoughts or negative thoughts in our mind, and this just happens because we're human, right? But when we have, when we're in a state of anxiety or when we're worrying or when we have a fear or when we have anger or bitterness or unforgiveness, when we have things um, in our mind that are spinning in our mind, this, the nervous system will detect and recognize what sh what's in us that should not be in us. So it, be it a virus, be it a bacteria, be it a splinter, but also if we have negative thinking, that was not in God's design, so that should not be in us. And the, the sympathetic nervous system, that fight, flight, or freeze, is automatically going to activate even with negative thinking or with toxic thoughts. 
So, and that's going to send us into a state of tension, and that tension is going to set us into pain or weakness, and that's going to send us right back into more of those thoughts. So if you're a student thinking about physical therapy, you should be thinking about these things as well. Right, exactly. Especially if that sounds appealing to you because it's part of being a successful therapist, it sounds like. Right, right. And just being uh, able to identify um, the power that the mind has. And, you know, when you have a thought the thought generates an impulse and the body has a physical response to that impulse. So it's, I say that the, the mind is like the locomotive that's pulling the train and the body is a boxcar. And so versus like jumping in and just starting on the body end, um, my approach at least is to start with the mind and the brain end. And I, I always tell my patients, I teach before I treat. Uh, because where the mind goes, the brain goes, the brain goes, the body follows. So if we can get the mindset on board and we can, especially on that very first visit, if I can instill hope in someone, um, that is huge because hope heals because God is the source of all hope. And um, oftentimes the Lord's going to allow us to suffer um, in order to, for us to look to him for that help so he can work his power through that situation and that circumstance. Well, Nicole, I know our listeners have been helped and hope restored just from listening uh, to you talk about your amazing career and physical therapy in general. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion, uh, listeners, with Nicole Bubby. I know I have. Uh, if you have questions that you'd like to ask Nicole, you can reach her by email using uh, Nicole B. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-B as in Bravo at fertilityandmidwifery.com, or you can contact the Fertility and Midwifery Care Center at 260-222-7401. And always, I want to thank you for joining us at All Things Women's Health. Please like and subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about us. I'll be back soon with another episode of All Things Women's Health, Always Catholic. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. 